You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, May 1st, 2020. Today's episode is titled, Great Grace and Great Fear. Good morning. This morning we'll be talking about great grace and great fear out of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Some of the early events of the first New Testament ecclesia were recorded by Luke in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. In the prior section of chapter 4, Peter and John endured emotional and mental suffering for Jesus, a harbinger of their calling to more intense suffering and eventually death. The Lord used this experience to strengthen and encourage not only Peter and John, but the whole New Testament ecclesia. In this first, in the section of chapter four and in the first part of chapter five, the New Testament ecclesia experiences great grace and great fear. The great grace was a result of responding to unjust suffering well, and this was manifested by three traits. First was equal yoking. They had unity of heart and mind. Secondly, was sacrificially using tangible resources to support the will of God and others. And third, with great power, they had unequivocal testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting that they experienced great power. The great, great fear was a result of judgment for misrepresenting truth about the Holy Spirit and to the Holy Spirit. God's normal forbearance with sin was temporarily suspended, leading to the death of the perpetrators of the lie. The level of holiness of the first New Testament ecclesia drew the attention of Satan, who found a leverage point in Ananias and Sapphira. Satan has three tools to use against humans, persecution, moral compromise, and false doctrine. His tool of choice here was moral compromise, and the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira were open to his influence. The hidden sin was exposed, and God lifted his forbearance for a moment to execute judgment. The death of Ananias and Sapphira put the fear of God in the New Testament ecclesia so deeply that it was characterized as great fear. Another way to view the situation is the example of the war between two seeds using the unpardonable sin. I'm a little reticent to use the unpardonable sin here as as to characterize the death of Ananias and Sapphira, but it might have been an example of that. So I'm going to at least talk about it from that perspective. The Protevangelum states that the seed of the serpent, which is, represents the kingdom of darkness and Satan, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, who's represented by the kingdom of light in Christ. The first New Testament ecclesia was bruised by this event, but God would redeem it by strengthening them. In other words, what we have here is perhaps an example of the Protevangelum's prophetic word about the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman. In the battle of the war between two seeds, it became clear that the practice of the first New Testament ecclesia was not communalism, as many have assumed. Rather, as will be seen in the text, private property was the accepted practice. This text has been very misunderstood along with Acts chapter 2, and people have presumed that it's taught communalism. I think you'll see very clearly from Acts chapter 5 that that was not the case. And we've got to understand that What we had here was early believers who were probably far more mature, even though they were young Christians, they were far more mature in scripture 
than most of the professing Christians today. In fact, I think it's fair to say that very few professing Christians today have anywhere near the biblical literacy that those early believers had. So getting the revelation about Christ, as they did from Peter in Acts chapter 2, they were able to connect the dots. They knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and once they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they connected those dots quickly, and they had very, very rapid understanding of the of the ecclesia at a level that probably most of us don't know. So that's uh, that's the thing about the first ecclesia is they had some advantages that we don't have today, which is why they probably operated at a much higher level than we do, which is why you have the reference great grace used here. I looked it up and tried to find any other reference in scripture to great grace. I could not find any other reference. This is the only place it's used. Now, the term great fear is used in about three or four different places, but great grace is limited to this place. So on some level, I think this this use here, this unique use of this term is, is giving testimony to the level of maturity that these people were coming to very quickly. And I think they were getting there, there largely because they were so knowledgeable of the word, so committed to the word willing to sacrifice their time, treasure, and safety to travel miles and miles and miles, making very hard journeys to be part of the religious festivals of the time. That's a level of commitment that very few have in the body of Christ today. So it's not surprising that we would have a very high bar here of engagement and maturity that's being demonstrated here by these early believers. So let's just take a look and see what we can learn from them about how to truly walk in great grace and how to respond properly to great fear. So first, chapter four, verses 32 through 37. Now the entire group of those who believed, that's an interesting way to to put it, the group of those who believed, it suggests maybe there were some that didn't believe, but the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. There was unity. There was equal yoking here. There was equal yoking in their heart, which represents their mind, will, and emotions, and their mind, which is a kind of a re-emphasis of their mind. You see, in Christianity, the way to live it, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the renewing of their mind happens when, when you get the word of God in you. They already had a lot of the word of God in them as Jewish people, as committed Jewish people, as some of the most committed Jewish people that were living at that time. And now you add the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. Now it's a whole new level of understanding of reality and where they are and what Christ did. So they were unified on Christ as Lord and Messiah. So that was uh, that was what he's talking about. That's what drew them together. Of course, This is also, they're also drawn together by the persecution that Peter and John had and the prayer that just preceded this particular verse where they asked for the grace to be able to boldly proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and what that meant. So now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Now, you can see how people might jump to the conclusion uh, that this is communalism. Well, that is not true. As we'll see in chapter five, that's not what's meant here. What's meant here is they were not holding on to physical assets 
for their own use. They were making all of their assets available for the purpose of God in the community. So whoever lacked resources to do something, God was moving in the hearts of people. They were disposing of resources, liquidating them, and then giving those resources to the community to facilitate the purpose of God. This, by the way, is what real giving is all about. If you're familiar with the five uses of giving, uh, you know that one of those five uses is to give. And when we give, we give without any strings attached. We're not looking for a tangible return. We're looking for a spiritual return. So I think this is probably an example of that. They were looking for where God is working in the hearts and minds of people in their community, which at that point was over 5,000 strong. And we don't know how long that, that you know, this body had been in existence. We don't have a time frame here, but it was probably still fairly close to Pentecost, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months away from Pentecost. And we know that it's at least 5,000 from Acts 2 and Acts 4. So the question is, wow, what, what are they doing here? They're looking at where God is working in people and they're saying, okay, this person needs resources to be able to do the call of God. Fine, I've got resources, I'll sell it. Uh, we'll apply those resources to help that person. And they were funneling these through the apostles who they trusted were perceiving the will of God in people much better than they would. So with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The linchpin of Christianity is not the cross, it's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no eternal life. The resurrection validates all of it. So it is absolutely essential. The first witness that was needed that, that, that Jesus asked his apostles to be was witnesses of his resurrection. We today think a witness is someone who shares about how, how they've come to know Christ. Well, that's, that's okay, but that's not really what they're talking about here. They're talking about the resurrection. They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. He did, really did die on the cross, and he was resurrected from the dead. They were testifying to that truth, and that truth validated that he was both Lord and Christ or Messiah. So that was the big thing. And so now they have great power. They have great divine favor to testimony, which, by the way, the political leaders and religious leaders had just forbidden them to do this. So they know they're violating what the wishes and the will of the religious leaders. But they have told the religious leaders, we're going to obey God rather than man. And so they must do this. And so they're now empowered to do this. And great grace was on them all. <clears throat> Four, there was not a needy person among them. Needy in the sense they needed something to do the will of God. Not needy in the sense of they needed something to do their will. You see, God is not into funding our will. He's into funding his will. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the will of God. And, and righteousness, the ways of God, and he will take care of your needs. He funds alignment with himself. So that's what I think you see here is they were needy in the sense they lack resources to do the will of God. And God moved in the hearts of certain people and they disposed of assets and turned the resources over to the apostles who made sure that those who needed them had those resources to do the will of God. So that's that's the objective here is always the will of God.
Reading on, verse 35, and they laid them at the apostles' feet. There was then distributed to each person as they had need. And then here's an example of how this worked. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one uh, by birth of one of the apostles called Barnabas, which was translated son of encouragement, sold a field he he owned and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What you have here now is Joseph, a Levite, who owns assets. Now, you know that Joseph, a Levite, should not own assets because Levites were not, we're told they were not to be possess anything. They were not to possess lands or buildings. Their portion would be the tithe. And so nevertheless, at some point, the system broke down and the Levites began to accumulate assets. And so Joseph had assets here and he chose to sell either land or a home or some some facility and give the money to the apostles for the purpose of serving the purpose of God in the people. So that's the great example of how this was being done. It's a positive example. It is not communalism. Joseph had full authority over the property and he was moved to the spirit to sell it. And he was moved to the spirit to give all the proceeds to the apostles. He was not, he did not have, he had every right to sell it. And he could have kept the proceeds, but he felt led to give it all. So that's the example of how this great grace was being manifested. They were had great grace and great power to proclaim the resurrection. They had great grace, you know, to be of unity of mind and heart. And they had great grace to see resources correctly. And that is as tools to do the will of God. So this is a powerful community operating at a level of alignment with God, obedience to God, that I would say probably few of any of us have ever seen. I don't know of any Christian community that operates like this. I don't know of any community that even thinks like this. This is such a high level of unity and equal yoking among the body of Christ. It's it's just almost unfathomable today. Uh, I don't know where to go to even begin to see something like this. All right, moving on to to the next uh, section, Acts 5, 1 through 11, this is great fear. So now we have the transition, but, which means in contrast to Ananias, or in contrast to Barnabas, we're going to have Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas was doing it correctly, showing the correct attitude. Ananias and Sapphira had an ulterior motive. So reading the text, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours when you possessed it? And wasn't wasn't it after it was sold? Was it at your disposal? Why is it that you've you planned this thing in your heart. You have not lied to people, but to God. So this is really an interesting text. Ananias is there. His wife, Sapphira, is not with him when he brings the money to Peter. And he's, <clears throat> Peter asks him the question and immediately identifies Satan as being involved in the, the decision that Ananias and Sapphira have made. And he points out to Ananias' heart, not Ananias and Sapphira's heart. It's Ananias' heart, probably signaling the headship of man. That's how they would have viewed it, that this decision, though it was they both agreed, Ananias was taking responsibility for it first and foremost. 
In his heart, he made this decision to, to lie and deceive. He held back. And that word, uh, keep back there, is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's a word that means to steal or embezzle or covertly withdraw and appropriate to your, one's own use. It's in, used in Titus 2.10, referencing stealing. So it, there's something very nefarious about this action. He intentionally withheld proceeds and represented to the apostles that it was all the proceeds. That deception is what he was called on the carpet for. Now, immediately it should cause you a little heartburn to think, wow, that's pretty strong. That's pretty stout uh, because it, it looks like he's been fairly you know, benevolent here. I'm, he's donating. You know, he's giving money to what looks like a very worthy cause. Why are you why are you beating on him for holding back? He's being challenged because of misrepresentation. It was fully in his possession, the property. He did not have to sell it. He chose to sell it. Then the proceeds were in his possession. He did not have to give anything. But he apparently represented that he was going to give it all. And he didn't. He, de- he lied. He deceived. And that was not acceptable. You can see why it raises the question in my mind is, is this possibly an example of the unpardonable sin? Because you have a very instant reaction. That is death. Reading on, when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. You see, this is quick. This, this, there was not any pause here. It's instant death. And that's a, a staggering thing. It kind of reminds me of of the incidents in 2 Samuel 6 about Uzzah being touching the ark when it was being transported to Jerusalem, which where it should be going, but it's not being transported correctly. It's not being, there's a prescribed way in which you transport the ark. And they were not doing it that way. It were, instead of transporting it on poles carried by the priest, it was being transported on a cart. And the cart represented the way of the world because that's how the ark had been returned to Israel after it had been captured by the Philistines. It was returned on a cart. And so now it, the Israelites copied the way of the world and were transporting it on a cart. And when it was the cart, uh, the, the ark has got, got feet on it that are not stable on a cart, they will slide around. And so the cart, you know, hit a rough spot in the road. And Uzzah was thinking that, well, the ark's going to fall off. So he reached up to steady it. And God struck him dead on the spot. And you say, wow, wait a minute. Everybody else there was was party of this too. Why was one person struck down? And why then? So you have this just incredible move of God to intervene and exercise his right to take someone out, which is what has happened here. What is really going on here? Could this be the unpardonable sin? It's It's possible. It could be that. Uh, I'm not saying it is, but I think it's something we have to entertain and, and give thought to. So Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. Now, we don't know who all heard, but as you're going to see in a few verses, his wife didn't hear. And before I move on, let me just again, I want to make this point about private property. It's very clear that Ananias and Sapphira had private property. And once they sold it, and they were not compelled to sell it. They chose to sell it. The proceeds were theirs, and they had full full authority over that. They did not have to give anything to the ecclesia. They chose to, and they chose to misrepresent it. That's what got them into trouble was the deception. 
but private property was how was what was being practiced in the in the early church. It was not communal as many would propose today. <clears throat> anyway, reading on after about three hours later, verse seven, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, so she hadn't heard about it. So the people that they had heard were apparently a fairly small circle. So that's important to know because things are about to go big. So Peter begins to talk to her. He says, tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Well, yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. You see, before, after Ananias died, it was great fear came on all who heard. And it didn't even include Sapphira. She hadn't heard. Now it's great fear on the whole ecclesia and all who heard these things. And by the way, this the word ecclesia is used for the first time in the book of Acts here in Acts 5.11. That's the first time it actually specifically used, although clearly all that's been going on since the beginning is about the ecclesia. So you have see Ananias here and Sapphira colluding together. It is in Ananias' heart to do it. He's the leader, but she has capitulated to it and she's agreed with it and supported it. And so she was held accountable too. Both of them were held accountable, even though Satan is said to have filled their heart. Satan has been involved. When Satan finds a leverage point to challenge us with something that is immoral, that we're susceptible to buying the challenge, when that happens, Satan's role does not keep us from accountability. We are accountable for our actions even though Satan may have had a role in helping to spur us on. Satan had a role in the garden with Adam and Eve. But his role, he got judged for his role, but his role did not provide any kind of protection for Adam and Eve. They were accountable for their sin, and I Sapphira are accountable for their sin. In this case, they had physical death. In the case of, of Adam and Eve, they had immediate spiritual death and ultimate physical death. So that's the picture here, great grace and great fear. And we've got to understand that God is in both. God is in the great grace and God is in the great fear. The great grace is empowerment to give us great power to do what he wants us to do. The great faith, great fear here is, is his gift of redemption. The redemption is to redeem us from immorality, to bad doctrine or or some other sin that we may have fallen into. It brings us to our knees in repentance. It humbles us and makes us more submitted and more teachable to him. So great fear is a great blessing, even though we don't view it that way. We view it as something that's awful and terrible. No, it was an opportunity for you to recenter on Christ and get more focused on Christ. So let me just give you a a, a theology here, just a theological point here on unpardonable sin and then an application. The unpardonable sin is a, is a really challenging thing. It's a challenging idea, but we have to realize that it is in scripture. And so as being in scripture, we, we want to try to deal with it as best we can. And I make no pretense to be able to, to deal with it well, but I think it's helpful to contextualize it some. 
So I like to go back to the fall and the war between two seeds, the war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and the protived gelum of Genesis 3.15, where it's stated that the seed of the serpent, which represents Satan and the kingdom of darkness, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which represents Christ and the kingdom of light. We are part of Christ's kingdom now if we know Christ. If we don't know Christ, we're part of the kingdom of darkness. You're part of one of those two kingdoms. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. Okay, but the seed of the woman in the end would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. In other words, the seed of the, the serpent, the kingdom of darkness, will have some victories. They will have some opportunities to win some battles, but the war will be won by the kingdom of light. In the end, that will prevail. The kingdom of darkness will be, be crushed. Sin and death and Satan will all be, be doomed to the lake of fire and done away with. They will no longer exist. And that is the second death, and that is eternal death. So in the meantime, prior to that final execution of that sentencing, Satan will have some victories. And we've got to recognize that and look for those. And one of those victories could be something like the unpardonable sin. Now, the unpardonable sin is specifically referred to in Matthew 12, verses 31 through 32. Uh, Jesus said this. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So this Matthean account uh, gives us the idea of blasphemy with speaking against the Holy Spirit. So it tells us what that is in terms of at least the word blasphemy. What is blasphemy exactly? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? That's a little more problematic. So let's see what Mark has to say about this. In Mark chapter 3, 28 through 30, he says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven of all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is called an eternal sin because they're saying, he has an unclean spirit. In other words, they're attributed to Jesus, his power source as being Satan and not the Holy Spirit. So in some way, was that going on here in Acts chapter five, where, where Ananias Sapphira, their action, their deception, in some way denying the power source of the Holy Spirit at work in the ecclesia. Is that what was going on? Perhaps it was. I don't think we can be dogmatic about it. I'm just suggesting that might be what it was. There's also a passage in 1 John that talks about the unpardonable sin. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. However, there is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Just like there, and I'm, this is, I'm adding to this, just like there is a sin that, that does lead to death. So it's a very interesting text. It doesn't give, it's, it's kind of obtuse. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. It just tells us that there exists this unpardonable sin. And, and when someone commits it, you don't pray for them. That, like that's that's uh, I've never seen a situation where I've ever heard anyone declare so and so has committed an unpardonable sin and we're not going to pray for them. I've never seen that in the body of Christ. 
I don't know if that's a testimony of our immaturity as a body of Christ or, or with that immaturity, lack of ability to recognize an unpardonable sin or exactly what it is. But we have in scripture here now these references to this very challenging idea that we have to pay attention to. There are several references that perhaps connect the unpardonable sin. Uh, these are these are more veiled references, Isaiah 63.10, Acts 7.51, Ephesians 4.30, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and Hebrews 10.29. There are theologians that will connect these passages to the unpardonable sin, although it's not explicitly stated in those te texts that it's an unpardonable sin. It's just, it's, it's, it's basically texts that talk about the irritation of the spirit, things like that. And perhaps those are unpardonable sins. So to understand basically the unpardonable sin, we have to, uh, we have to really dig into what, what blasphemy is and what it means. And what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit specifically, attributing things that, that we see going on that the Holy Spirit is doing, but attributing those to demons or Satan. Uh, that's, that's a more problematic thing for us to see and to do. We need to become more discerning and wise about recognizing that. The unpardonable sin is a challenging truth, though the scripture speaks clearly that there is an unpardonable sin. We are only given a, an equivocal definition. That is, we're not having a real precise definition. It's equivocal. The truth of biblical infallibility intimates that this definition of blasphemy, which is fairly limited, is all we need to know. So we can take heart in that. We know what we need to know. We can see what we need to see. And we'll probably see it best as we mature and grow in Christ and become extremely biblically literate and very committed to living by the word of God. We'll probably see this better and better. But until we get more mature, we're probably not going to see it well at all. And, and may, the God, may the Lord give us grace to recognize that at this point we see what we need to see and we can see what we need to see in the future if we will grow up and mature in Christ. So may we have the grace to do that. So let me do a quick application. Over the past few months, the world has experienced great grace and great fear. For most of the first quarter, the economies of the world were doing well. There was great grace economically. Then the reality of the scope of the pandemic became clear. Suddenly, with unprecedented speed, the governments of the world began to shut down the economies in fear of the pandemic, losing total control over the pandemic. Within a few weeks, great fear gripped the world. The scope of this global pandemic is unprecedented in modern times. It's really paralyzed the world. In Acts chapter four through five, the first New Testament ecclesia had a similar experience of enjoying great grace and then enduring great fear. The great grace was the empowerment to endure unjust suffering. This was a unifying experience of the early disciples of Jesus that motivated them to an elevated level of mutual care. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, also known as Barnabas, expressed compassion by selling some of his private property and giving all the proceeds to help meet the needs of the community. But there was at least one example of a couple who was not as transparent as Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira. Like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira sought to contribute to the needs of the community, but unlike Barnabas, they did so with duplicity. Ananias and Sapphira were equally yoked in their sin, but unequally yoked in the relationship with the ecclesia. The Lord's common grace expressed by forbearance with fallen mankind was lifted. 
and judgment was executed in the form of instant physical death. Their deaths were, were shocking. Great fear gripped the Christian community and all who heard. God is under no obligation to forbear judgment against human sin. He does so voluntarily. God singularly chose to forbear for his own purpose. Otherwise, we would not exist. Without his forbearance, we would all be consumed, as Solomon said in Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. That's an expression of his forbearance, his merciful forbearance. The ecclesia was so accustomed to enjoying God's forbearance that they took it for granted. So when judgment was administered, they were stunned and overwhelmed with great fear. For those who know the Lord, great fear should not paralyze them. Rather, it should promote repentance that produces obedience to God. Today, the world is shocked and gripped with great fear over a pandemic. To understand this correctly, we must remember that disease and plagues are products of a fallen world. Perhaps we should be, not, should be surprised that this doesn't happen more often. Graciously, God's norm is forbearance, but he is free at any time and for his own reasons to execute judgment on sin. The truth should keep humans very humble. That's what great fear should do, is keep us in humility. Enjoy the grace of God and know that grace means gift. God's forbearance for sinful men is his gift. Even those that know God and are justified before him still sin. We're not fully sanctified until our transition into his presence. Humans have no right to demand that God forbear temporal judgment. Therefore, we should be very thankful for his great grace and work diligently to live transparently like Barnabas. And when God unexpectedly executes temporal judgment, this causes great fear to arise. Let us have the grace to obediently, humbly, humble ourselves before him and be thankful for his many blessings, particularly the blessing of salvation from eternal judgment. Sinful man deserves eternal judgment and is saved from this judgment only by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we have the grace to live in this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.